Now, if you remember, Hebrews uh, is a letter that's written to a whole bunch of people who, I think in all honesty, are pretty beaten down by the circumstances of life. They've been experiencing a whole lot of difficulty and suffering, and quite understandably, really, the question that is uppermost in their minds is, look, if God supposedly loves us so much, why on earth is our life so hard? Anyone here ever wondered that? Yeah, a few people nodding. Well, according to today's passage, the good or bad news, whichever way you're looking at it, is we're always going to find life hard because ultimately we don't belong here. That there's always going to be this tension for those people who follow Jesus because our true home is somewhere else. Just to give some kind of background to this, it's been suggested that you can divide the whole book of Hebrews into three basic sections. In chapters 1 to 4, if you remember, we're on a journey with Jesus, the prophet, into the true rest of God. In chapters 5 to 10, we're on a journey with Jesus, the true priest, into the true presence of God. Uh, And then in the final chapters, in chapters 10 through to 13, we're with Jesus the King on a journey to the true city of God. Now, just to add, these final few chapters that we've been looking at these last few weeks are not only riddled with references to the city to come, but there also seems to be something about this city that's closely linked with pressing on and persevering when life is tough. If you remember, we saw it with Abraham in chapter 11, verse 10, where it says Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. And we see it again here in today's passage in chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, where it says, under the old system, in the old covenant, in the Old Testament, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also, Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So, let us go out to him, outside the camp, and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. You know, I don't reckon we think about the home yet to come, this heavenly city, anywhere near enough. And as a result, I believe we're depriving ourselves of one of the main sources of motivation that the New Testament writers can think of for persevering, for pressing on, for keeping on going through difficult, challenging times. And so, really, all I want to do in the time that remains this morning is answer three very basic questions. Number one, what is the city to come actually going to be like? Secondly, how then do we live now in light of this And thirdly, how then do we get the power to live like this? First question, what's the city to come 
going to be like. Now, uh, rest assured, I have given some thought to this, and I have got a few answers of my own, uh, but can you help me out a bit? Well, what do you reckon? What's the city to come going to be like? Uh, let, let's break it down into two categories. What, what's going to be there and what's not going to be there? Now, don't get too random in the what's not going to be there. Uh, but first of all, what's going to be there? What's the city to come going to be like? What's going to be in the city to come? The new heaven, the new earth. What's going to be there? What do you reckon? Jesus. Good start. The answer to most good questions, Jesus. Tick. God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, I think we've, we've got that category sorted. What else is going to be there? Food. It's going to be feasting and banqueting. Looking forward to that. Light. Yeah, no, son. The, the, the light of the glory of God will, will fill the new heaven and new earth. Uh, and it'll be so glorious that, that no need for the sun, uh, so there won't be any shadows, uh, it says in the Bible. Yep, that's going on to the things that won't be there. We'll, we'll pause that. Uh, what, what else is going to be there? Perfect relationships, community, family, uh, of people from every tongue, every tribe, every people group under heaven, united together. No sin, uh, righteousness, perfection, purity, no sin. What else is going to be there? Joy, I think there'll be a little bit of that. Praise and worship, we're, we're going to see God as He really is. Uh, and, and therefore, we're going to praise him uh, with, with full knowledge, full understanding, full revelation of who he is. What, what else is going to be there? Bodies, uh, but new resurrection bodies that, uh, well, if Jesus is anything to go by, we better walk through walls and appear in places. Uh, none, of, none of the aches and pains that blight our aging bodies, uh, brand new resurrection bodies. Yes, what else? A mansion with many rooms. Yeah, looking forward to that as well. Being prepared by Jesus even now. Okay, those are some of the things that are going to be there. What's not going to be there? It's no sickness, no death, no pain, no sadness. I think that's a start. I mean, put like that, is that something to look forward to? Yeah? absolutely is. Let me just backtrack, give you a bit of context to all of this. In ancient times, the word city was closely linked with the words society and civilization. In fact, our word today, civilized, actually literally means citified. And so, a civilized person is a citified person. And the reason city and civilization were so closely tied together was way back in ancient times, it was only in the cities that you tended to find cultural life flourishing and growing. Only in the city did you have consistent political life, economic life, uh, and the rule of law. You, you didn't have it consistently anywhere else. And so, when we're told in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was looking forward to and seeking a city built by God, and when it says here in Hebrews 13 that we now are looking forward to a home yet to come, it's speaking about God preparing 
a whole new society. And if you want to get a picture of what that final city is like, that new society, that brand new human order, you see it coming down out of heaven at the end of the book of Revelation. When the city of God gets here, we're told, as some of you have shouted out, there'll be no disease or death or poverty or strife or racism or suffering all injustice and all poverty is wiped off the face of the earth forever and all tears are wiped off the faces of the people. It's a society not based on power and pride and selfishness, but instead based on justice, based on righteousness, based on peace and based on service to others. That is the city of God to come. That that's the brand new home that we, like Abraham, are confidently looking forward to. So in light of that, second question, how then do we live now in light of that? Well, three suggestions for you. Number one, we're to live as though Birmingham is our home, assuming that you do live in Birmingham. If you don't, you can put your own home in there. Uh, but we're to live as though Birmingham is our home, but at the same time, it's not our home. Back in chapter 11, verse 13, it talks about the great believers in history and describes how they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, the word translated exiles there is actually a fairly complicated word. It referred to a very specific status back in Greco-Roman society. Perhaps a better translation would be resident exiles. On the one hand, these were people who aren't visitors. They're not tourists. They're not just passing through. A resident exile was a permanent resident. But at the same time, they're not citizens of where they reside. They're exiles. Their true home is elsewhere. And really, that's how it is for us who believe in Jesus. We are residents here in Birmingham, but at the same time, we are citizens of another city, the city still to come. If you like, we are resident exiles. We're not a tourist or a visitor who's just here for a short period of time, or not even like a person who comes here temporarily to get a degree or just to make some money or get something on the CV and then get out as soon as they can. No, a resident exile is someone who says, although this isn't actually my true home, this is where I'm going to put down roots and live permanently. There's a passage in the Old Testament, we quote it often, Jeremiah 29, that gives us, I think, a perfect example of what this looks like lived out in practice. If you remember, God speaks through Jeremiah to the Israelites who, if you recall, have been carried off as captives into Babylon, into this alien city. And what does God say to them? He says, settle down there, build houses, plant vineyards, raise your families. But most of all, he says, pray and work for the full flourishing, the full prospering of that city. In other words, love the city 
in which you're an exile. You know, it's not enough simply to say Christians should be in the world but not of the world. I don't think that's good enough. I don't think that goes quite far enough. You see, most Christians take this to mean either staying separate and at the same time being ever so slightly suspicious or judgmental or hostile towards the society around them, or alternatively, completely conforming so there is no noticeable difference at all. But really, neither of these approaches leads to the change, the deep change that God's looking for. You see, one is so keen to accept people as they are and never offend anyone that there's never any confrontation or challenge that leads to life change. The other withdraws and forms a separate community where, yes, everyone conforms, but because they're separate, they're out of touch, and still there is no transformation of the city. Listen, so much of the creative power for serving in the city comes from the tension of being a community of people which stands out from the world, but all the time for the sake of the world. We know we're exiles, but we are resident exiles. We're a counterculture, but we're a counterculture for the common good. We're neither separatists nor conformists. We're exiles, but we are resident exiles. You see how hard that is? See how challenging that is? See how rare that is? As we've seen, the reason is so rare is most religious groups resolve the tension by being either exiles or residents, but rarely resident exiles. But if we believe in the city to come that we've described in a bit of detail this morning, if we believe that, if that's our confident hope, it surely frees us to put down roots and make Birmingham our home while all the time knowing that ultimately it's not our home. And to take it a step further, secondly, we're to model what that city to come looks like to the people around us. We're only seeing here that we're looking forward to the city to come. It's a city in the future. But back in chapter 12, verse 22, intriguingly, the writer says to his readers, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That seems like a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Chapter 12 says, you have come to the city of God. Chapter 13 says, the city of God is still to come. Now, which is it? Is the city of God still to come, or have we already come to it? I think the answer is, the city of God is already, but not yet. It's partly here, but it's not yet fully here. If you remember, Jesus said to his disciples, you are a city set on a hill whose good works are the light of the world. It's like when people who have experienced the grace of God get together and form a community, that community is an imperfect 
but at the same time, genuine foretaste of what that future city is going to be like. I think that's the message here in chapter 13, verse 16, where we're told to do good and to share with those in need. In other words, we're supposed to live out what it will be like in the city to come. We're to be a prophetic picture of what's to come, a place where people get along, a place where we serve one another, a place of peace, a place of justice. We're to model what the city to come looks like. And in all of this, thirdly, we're to prepare for disgrace. We need to understand up front that we are being set up here for a life of pain. We're being called to sacrifice for a city that will misunderstand us, sometimes marginalize us, and certainly reject us. We've been called to love a city that will never fully love us back. Look again at verse 13. It says, let us go out to him, go out to Jesus outside the camp and bear the, what's the word? Disgrace that he bore. The reality is, if we are true followers of Jesus, sooner or later we will end up in tension with the people around us. Sooner or later, there'll be a disconnect between what we believe and what our city believes. At some point, every culture, in every generation, and every part of the world looks at some of the things that Christians do and believe and says to us, we are offended by what you Christians believe. It's disgraceful to us, those things that the Bible says. You need to get up to date with what our culture thinks. Uh, Unless you conform to our beliefs, we're going to do all we can to kick you outside the camp. Now, this is a tough one, because none of us wants to appear foolish. None of us wants to seem out of date None of us wants to be excluded. Am I right? Anyone here up for that? Uh, Not so sure. But here's the thing. If you go to another culture of the world, the things that our culture hate, they love. And the things that our culture think are fine, they've got a real problem with. And so, if you think about it, if Christians were to actually try to fit into their cities everywhere in the world, there would be no Christianity left. Not only that, keep this in mind, the things in the Bible that the average person here in the UK think of as regressive right now, a hundred years from now, they're going to think of as progressive. Study church history, you see this cycle of change and things come around. All the critics of the Bible right now are going to find themselves in the dustbin of history before too long. In just a couple of generations' time, they're going to be laughed at for being so old-fashioned. It was brought home to me at the University of Birmingham Open Day recently, where they had on the screen, I've told this story before, but they had on the screen all of the Nobel Prize winners from the university uh, over the last century. Uh, loads of them, I was quite impressed. And then they kind of moved on from the screen. They said, but of course, we don't uh, just live off that. We've got our own cutting-edge researchers now. It's like all of those prize winners 
uh, on a global scale, well, nothing now. We're, we're, we're discovering new things, and, and that's history. We're, we're onto something more. That's what it's like. All of the critics of the Bible right now are going to find themselves in the dustbin of history before too long. Just a couple of generations' time, and we laughed at for being so old-fashioned. And so when people say Christianity has got to get up to date, what they're really saying is my culture is the ultimate culture. My time in history is the ultimate moment. And it's really not. We have no enduring city here. I tell you, if you water down the teaching of the Bible, or if you're tempted to walk away from Christianity altogether because you just don't think it's up to date, the things you have jettisoned it for are a mess, and they'll be out of date faster than you know. It's like the fastest way for Christianity to go out of date is to try to get up to date, because everything that's up to date is soon laughed at. But according to the book of Hebrews, if you embrace what the Bible says, you are adopting the values, the practices, the beliefs of the city of God which is to come, and they will never pass away. Therefore, you'll never be out of date. 500 years from now, there'll be billions of people who believe what you believe today, because we have the only enduring city. But that doesn't alter the fact that right now, Christians are exiles. Every city we're in, there's this tension between what the culture believes and what Christianity believes. And so thirdly and finally, where then do we get the power to live this out? Where do we get the power to be citizens of the future city and yet residents of the present city? How are we going to get the power to be the very best residents of our earthly city while all the time being misunderstood, being hated, being ostracized by the people around us? How do we get the power to keep loving a city that will never love us back? Where does the power come from to live counterculturally while staying completely engaged with the culture around us, to be neither separate nor the same as? Where in the world do we get the power to live as resident exiles? Let's take another look at our passage, verses 12 to 14 of Hebrews 13. It says, Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. And then here's the key to it all, verse 13, so, as a result of that, so, let us go out to Him. So let us go out to Jesus outside the camp and bear the disgrace He bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Now, I think it'd be very easy to read that and say, okay, I get it, I get it. We need to try harder to combine all of the integrity and the high standards of the Christians and the churches that separate themselves from the culture with the love and the engagement and the care for the whole city of the Christians and the churches who accept everyone as they are. And so, we're going to work as hard as we can from this point on to be the perfect church. But be honest, is me standing here right now telling you that you ought to do this going to make any lasting difference? 
Probably not. You see, at the end of the day, the only way we're ever going to become resident exiles in the way that's taught in this passage is if the fundamental structures of our hearts are changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. So, in the words of verse 13, let us go out to Him. You know, whenever biblical writers start to try to get you to change your life, they never appeal directly to the will to start off with. They always first go to your heart. They never appeal directly to you. They always and everywhere start by going to Him. For example, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's talking about giving your money. But look how he does it. He doesn't say, be generous, because really that's the Christian thing to do. Now here's what he says. He says, if you're having trouble being generous because you're anxious about money or you're too needing money, it's because you don't know the generosity of Jesus Christ, who on the cross, though he was rich, became poor, so through his poverty, we might become rich. You see, Paul won't let you get away with saying, I know Jesus died for me, but I'm not being generous. He says, look, if you're not generous, you don't know Jesus died for you. Jesus is still not really your Savior. You're still not believing it. You're not being melted by it. not being changed by it. You haven't grasped it in the depths of your being because money is still your significance. Money is still where you're finding your security. So don't tell me you, you know Jesus died for you. Don't tell me you know He's your Savior. You don't know it in the depths of your being. It's ultimately down to a lack of rejoicing in the good news of the gospel. That's why you're still not generous. If you knew He died for you, Paul says, you would be generous. And that's pretty much how it always works in the Bible. The biblical writers never say, do this, now go away and get to it. Nor does the Bible say, be like Jesus, now just go away and do it. Never. Here's how the Bible goes. The Bible goes, do this, and if you're honest, you will put your hands up and say, I can't. And then the Bible comes back and says, yeah, but there is one who did for you in your place. And to the degree that you grasp that and know that and experience that, it changes your life, and you can then begin to do it too. And that's exactly what the Hebrews writer is doing here. He's saying, get out there and love a city that will never love you back, never thank you, never appreciate you. And if you're honest, you'll say, I can't. The writer of the Hebrews then says, I know, but there's one who did. You know, I think it's fair to say Jesus loved his city. He loved the city of Jerusalem. Remember the place in Luke 19, 42, where he's crying out and he's weeping and he's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Jesus loved that city. He healed people in that city. He fed people in that city. 
But what does this say happened to him? He, he loved a city that eventually crucified him outside the gate. Why outside the gate? Because that was a symbol, a pretty powerful one at that. Crime alienates you from human community. Sin alienates you from human community. You live for yourself. You, you destroy human community. So you are sent out of the city. You're sent out of the human community. You experience alienation, which is what you deserve. I just let it sink in. Jesus loved that city, but he lost that city. On the cross, he didn't just lose the earthly city. You know what else he lost? He lost the city of God because he doesn't say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say, earthly city, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like on the cross, Jesus was losing the city for you and for me. He was experiencing the cosmic alienation that sin deserves. He was being sent outside the city gate. He was being cast out in our place so that God could now accept us in spite of our failures. Or in the words of Tim Keller, whose teaching on the city is incredibly rich and has certainly helped frame and shape this message today. Jesus lost the city that was, so we could become citizens of the city to come, making a salt and light in the city that is. Jesus lost the city that was, so we could become citizens of the city to come, making us salt and light in the city that is. So, trying to put all of this together, here's how it works. It's only when I see Jesus loving someone who will not love him back, loving a city that won't love him back, loving me and you who won't fully love him back ever like we should. When I see that happening, then I'm melted, then I'm empowered. I'm affirmed a bit, and then I'm humbled into being able to do the same thing. But only then. Not only that, since I have the sure and certain hope of the future city to come, I don't have to be scared of or seduced by this earthly city. I'll tell you something. Without the gospel, there are only two possible ways to respond to a city like Birmingham. You either get seduced by it and sucked into it because you desperately want significance and security from the people out there, or else you are intimidated by it and you end up hostile to it. You either become a resident or you become an exile, but the gospel makes you a resident exile it frees you to serve the city instead of using it or fearing it or attacking it or being seduced by it. Jesus suffered and died outside the city gate, so let us go out to him. Because to the degree we grasp what he did for us, 
we can then bear the same disgrace and still love the city that will never accept us. And always look at some of our beliefs and say, disgraceful, outrageous, get out. But we don't care. We love them anyway, because that's how Jesus has loved us. And I'll close with this. This isn't just theory. This isn't cut off from reality. This is very much how it was when the church was first launched. Because they understood and knew and experienced the gospel, they lived these radical lives that had a profound effect on the cities all over the ancient world. Have a listen to how the early early Christians were described in a letter written to a guy called Diognetus back in the second century. He said, or it said to him, they share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They love all human beings, but they are persecuted by everyone. They're poor, yet make many rich. They lack all things, and yet have everything they want. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. To sum up, that is what Christians are in the city. What a challenge. What an invitation. What an adventure.